Hey, everybody, we're going to pick up our conversation we started last week. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and listen to that episode, and then you can listen to this episode. This is part two of a two-part series. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Friday Habit with Benjamin Manley and Mark Labriola II. The Friday Habit is for creators, entrepreneurs, and agency owners looking for actionable ideas on how to grow their business and be more profitable. We'll pull from our combined knowledge of over 20 years and interview thought leaders that will inspire you and give you the motivation you need to kick your business into high gear. Buckle up. It's Friday. Your reputation is going to outlive whatever money you make as part of this deal. And let's... Like let, let's just like like pound for pound, there is not an, an enough amount of money that in our minds is worth for your integrity to walk out the door. You know, this is the moment where you truly show. Okay, do you have a spine as as a CEO? Do you want to actually come up with and honor that sacred agreement that you have with you and your team, while being transparent with your investors, while being transparent with your board, while being transparent with the acquiring company? This is very much a long term exercise and very much what legacies are built on. Your legacy is built with the difficult decisions you make, not when, you know, everything is kumbaya and everybody makes a billion dollars. Like, this is what we really wanted to hammer home here, where your decisions, your actions, your reputation is going to outlive no matter what you make as as part of that, as part of that transaction. Mark, what are your thoughts? So, so, yes, and. So, in addition to all of those people you laid out, all the different stakeholders, I would also add your customers. Because you have a sacred duty, you have a sacred responsibility to make sure your customers are well taken care of. But but something else, Merck, that you touched on, one of the ways to optimize value is we like to say looking forwards instead of looking backwards. So most companies get sold, uh, let's call it, a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA, of profitability, looking backwards, the way to create real value going to fair, uh, fit, alignment, integration, and rationale, when you look at the rationale and you say, what could this company do together with the acquiring company? How can the acquiring company, if you plug our our product into your sales and distribution. What is that going to look like? If our product plugs a hole for you strategically, the acquiring company, and you can gain market share, not on the sale of our product, but on the sale of their existing products, what does that look like? If um, our product actually could improve the retention rate of the acquiring company's existing product line, a small improvement of the retention rate on a much larger company has an outsized impact. And the best deals, the best way to optimize value is by creating that rationale, looking forward of what the future could look like together. Hmm. I love that. And I want to give a concrete example in here. You know, a lot of our audience will remember Back in the day when I was leaving school, Facebook bought Instagram, right? It was like, holy crap. Yeah, billion, billion dollars. dollars. Oh, my billion gosh. Dollars. Yeah. It's a two-year company. Oh, my God. Like, it's the, this, what is this guy doing? Mark, what, what, what the hell? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, this was yeah. like, I remember the entrepreneurial community ridiculing Facebook, just being like, what is this dude thinking? 
if there were a Mount Rushmore of CEOs who get acquisition, I will chisel Mark Zuckerberg up there <laughs> because Instagram delivered more than 20 billion in profit eight years later as a core asset of what makes Facebook Facebook today. They stole it for a billion dollars. Like that was an ingenious, ingenious acquisition because it wasn't about, oh, we have 40 million users. We don't make any money, whatever. No, what can Facebook do if they dominate mobile? This is a much more interesting question. And to that end, actually, right. you know, shout out to the to, to Kevin, the CEO, Kevin Systrom, the CEO of Instagram. His asking price was two billion. Like, imagine the audacity of that dude to ask for two billion and not have like a funny face, like what, while with he's no doing revenue. that. With no revenue. Yeah. With no revenue. Right? Yeah. Because he got it. He understood. Like, look, to mm. them, it, like what we can do together right, is worth right. billions. Mm -hmm. And look, the final deal ended up being like super valuable, great for for all parties. Kevin Sister ended up like joining Facebook and stayed there for for a long period of time. But this is what we want our readers to think through as they think, think their companies. And look, it doesn't have to be the, the Instagram and the Facebook, but put yourself in the shoes of the CFO of the acquiring company. Why should they care? How are you gonna move the needle for them? Look, we get it. Your numbers are impressive and it adds credibility to what you're saying, but it's not about you. It's about us now. What can we do together? This mm -hmm. is how you drive really the maximum price for your company and frankly, find the right home for your business. Because if you're not excited about that future value, you probably shouldn't be selling your company to that to that hmm. parent. It's kind of like finding the right chemistry between you and the buyer. I'm, I have a super weird kind of dumb analogy, but I'm thinking of like somebody that's like, hey, I found this old lawnmower in this shed and I need to sell it. And they're going to go out and sell it. And instead of like, oh, let me just try to rip somebody off on Craigslist and charge as much as I can for it and hope they don't notice this thing's broken, right? Instead of doing that, they're like, hey, maybe I should sell it to a kid that has a lawn mowing business and maybe that'll bring value to him. Then it's like, oh, wait, actually, this is a really old lawn mower. This is an antique. It's like only one of a kind. Maybe I could sell it to a museum. And for them, that's like a big you deal. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, okay, you got to find the right person and also be transparent about what's wrong with it. Like give them the instruction manual, help them make a transition. So it's a win for both of you instead of just be like, oh, maybe I can rip somebody off and get a, a good price I for this. I pass the hot potato. Yeah, what, exactly. Whatever that is. Like that's, that's the wrong way. And by the way, you're not fooling anybody. Right. Like people don't like sell their companies in a day. Like there's right. going to be a diligence process, months long. <laughs> right. Like whatever's right. wrong, people are going to find out anyway. So why don't we start with trust and just right. be like, hey, this is this is what we're about. Yeah, well, to be honest. That yeah. is actually, I, I just literally wrote down the word trust. On my notes. <laughs> you know, a couple of things here. When we talked to the heads of Corp Dev at all the major tech companies, we said, what, what do you wish CEOs knew before they came to talk to you? And universally, every single one of them said, we like to acquire companies that we know, that we trust, that we have relationships with. And so when's the time to start talking to them? Not when you're ready to sell. Right. Two, three, four, five years before you're ready to sell because you want to build that relationship. You want to build the trust. And most importantly, you want to be a seeker of knowledge. So when I was the CEO of a company and, and getting ready to sell, one of the things I used to always do is I'd go to potential strategic acquirers just to say hi, check in, fine. But what I would do is I would ask them, what do you care about? What's your strategic vision? Where are your holes? What are you looking for? Where do you think you're going to be in a couple of years? And sometimes they, it's private and confidential and they wouldn't tell us. But a lot of times, shockingly, they would. 
And as an entrepreneur, as a smaller entrepreneur, that was great information because if I knew the larger company was going in that direction, you know, I could sort of subtly shift my, either shift away or if I knew that that was a hole for them, dive into that hole and and see if I can plug it. Um, So remember that that knowledge and trust are a currency that is really important for entrepreneurs to be aware of. Mm. I heard you mention earlier um, the importance of FAIR, uh, fit, alignment, integration, and uh, rational. You've mentioned a lot of those kind of things. Can you break that down for us? And where did that come from? Absolutely. Um, So we want to give credit to one of our favorite folks that we interviewed for our book, Gary Johnson. He ran M&A at Facebook, Apple, Pinterest. Now he runs his own sort of like direct consulting business where he help, works with founders directly. He's one of the walking legends of like, you, this is the person that you want to have on your camp when you're selling your company, or you want this person to be the person you're selling your company to because he really just gets it. He coined this phrase, uh, every acquisition needs air, acquisition, uh, the uh, alignment, integration, rationale. Um, and we, our, our mere humble suggestion was to add the word fit in the beginning of that. What that roughly translates to is these critical elements, these four things that every acquisition should have. And you can literally think about you're adding zeros, the more elements that that you have Uh, of the acquisition. Fit is the cultural fit between the two companies. Do you get along? Like, look, if you're a high-flying you know tech company that makes you know quick decisions don't really like like follow authority as much you're like way more about like rapid iteration maybe you won't fare well in a traditional hundred year old like old moving like Walmart type company again shout out to Walmart it's a great company but again we're talking about cultural thing can you sit right. next to these people on a plane for four hours and like have a great time fit alignment are you aligned? First, internally, are you aligned with your board? Are you aligned with your team? Are you aligned with your co-founders? Are you aligned with your family around like what you're trying to do? As well as, are you aligned with the acquiring company in terms of the direction that you're all going to go together? Again, critical element of why, why, why do, why should we care here? Integration is is there a plan in place where these two companies can deliver value together? Like so many times, we see examples of companies. You know, they have competitive products, for example. They get acquired. One of them sort of like ingests the other one. And like the products keep competing after like years because they never integrate and they're like literally fighting against each other in deals. Like that, like there's so many examples of integration failures that there has to be a clear, thoughtful plan of how these companies are going to come together. And most importantly, put the customer first. How are we going to deliver more value to our customers? Which brings me to the final point, the rationale. Can I explain to my, you know, 88-year-old grandmother why this really makes sense? Like why why together we're going to deliver more impact for our for our stakeholders, for our for our customers? Is there something that strategically we fill for the acquiring company? Is there something that together that we can drive more value around? Most people, if any, think about this rationale, but the F and the A and the RI are equally important in terms of how a deal comes together because inevitably Inevitably, every deal runs into roadblocks. There are pencils down moments. There are challenges. You mess something up. You like think it like intentional or unintentional. There are like deals are difficult to come together. The medicine for every challenging deal is trust. 
is whether you trust the person that's in front of you. That's how you sort of lubricate the sort of when, when something gets stuck, that's where you add the WD-40 for, for things to keep moving forward. This, these elements are trust generators. Think of them as like the battery that you're charging up so that when you're ready to actually make something happen, you're using the energy that you stored up over the years. So you're sort of turning like potential energy into kinetic energy in here. And these are the elements of how you make that happen. That was so well said. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. We should write a book together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got so much. Writing this book was really a joy. And, you know, one of the things that we got out of it, too, was this concept of an annual exit talk. And what we mean by that is there's a lot of stigma attached to exits. And there's a lot of, in, in our world, which is more on the technology side, uh, boards of directors, CEOs are hesitant to bring up the subject because they feel like their investors may think, oh, they're losing energy or they don't care or their heart's not in it. Maybe I'll get fired if I bring it up. And we came up with this idea, this concept of an annual exit talk so that once a year, it's regularly scheduled. You're going to be open and transparent, and the CEO is going to have an opportunity to say, you know, how they're feeling. Like, you know, we're kicking butt, a lot of momentum, we're gaining market share, it's way too early, now is not the time. Or, you know, things are starting to slow down a little bit, there's some competition coming, our technology is getting a little bit old in the tooth, or whatever it is. Um to have an opportunity to have that conversation and the same with your board and your investors. We're VCs. VCs, every VC fund has a, a life cycle. You know, it's typically for us, it's a 10-year life cycle. By the by year 10, we got to get some exits and return capital to our LPs. And so they're starting, you know, the, the more time progresses, we're starting to feel a little bit of stress and urgency to get that exit going. And so, and VCs don't necessarily talk to each other about fund dynamics and fund timing. And so by creating an annual exit talk, it also gives you the luxury of time. So if you think, oh, you know, maybe 18 months from now, two years from now, it'll be the right time, you can start talking strategically Who's the most likely acquirer? Is it going to be a strategic, uh, a competitor, or a much larger strategic uh, company? Or is it going to be a financial buyer? Is it going to be a private equity fund? What do they care about? Do they care about top line revenue and growth? Well, maybe if you have a a little bit of time, you can juice up the marketing, push top line growth a little bit. If it's EBITDA, it's a financial buyer. Well, maybe you tighten the ship a little bit. You spend a little bit less on marketing. You know, you really focus on your bottom line and make sure your EBITDA numbers are good. Maybe they're buying you for uh, intellectual property. So you have a chance to beef up your patent portfolio, make sure all your ducks are in a row. If you have a little bit of time and you have alignment around your board, it gives you the ability to also optimize returns. Hmm. Mert, I have a question for you. Uh, When you started your company, did you start it with the intention of selling it eventually? Or how did that come about as far as 
um, you know, did someone just knock on your door one day and say, Hey, we'll give you enough money to buy a Japanese van. And you're like, done. Like, how did that work? You know, when I was starting out, exit right didn't exist at the time. So unfortunately I had some, you know, the, the, I had the advice that every founder most of the time hears from, you know, people who are further along in the journey, whether it's your masters or mentors, whatever, which is then just build a great business. Great. You know, one of the legends of the startup investing world is a gentleman named Paul Graham who started Y Combinator. Very, very successful, like entrepreneur in his own right. Very interesting author. Um, lots of original ideas came from Paul in, in his contributions to, to startups. Um, but one of the things that we humbly disagree with him on is that he had this seminal post that, that he wrote, which is startups should never talk to corp dev. Which, by the way, plagued the M&A business for literally the decade after that. Because this is this is why startup founders don't want to talk to M&A people. Because like, oh, yeah. Paul Graham said that we shouldn't we shouldn't talk to them. Right. And the, his idea in writing that post was: if you build a phenomenal business, metrics are flying through the door, it's growing, it's crazy, whatever. Don't worry, they will come. Now, part of what Paul is saying is true. Of course, if you're building Facebook, <laughs> you're, you're, you're great. Like you're going to have a lot of suitors knocking on your door. The reality is this only applies to the to, to the 99.9 percentile performer of the of the startup game. Like startups operate in a power law. Like you're either in this like we're doing insanely well and we're swatting people away, whatever, which is ironically where most returns are driven from in, in venture funds. It's sort of like this unicorn hunting uh, business. Um, yeah, if you're that, you're right. You don't have to talk to a corporate. Actually, as a matter of fact, you don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> you don't have to talk to like, yeah. like any new investor. You don't have to talk about new employees. Like people will come to you because you're building what you're building. This is not practical. This isn't practical for the rest of us, the, the mortals of the of the startup world, which are plenty fine, high growth, fantastic companies. They're just not Facebook. There's, you know, like 10 of those in a decade, you know, like it's not some sort of a realistic uh, thing, uh, you know. A aspirationally is fantastic, but it's just not realistic for the for for the majority for the for the mass of the uh, of the startup world. So I was actually never thought about selling the company, and I knew like, look, if you know, one of the sort of like the table stakes arguments was, you know, we're building a technology that improves quality of care in hospitals. Um, part one of that ways of doing that is through better hand hygiene. Well, if we improve hand hygiene rates, guess what? They go through more soap, more alcohol, hand sanitizer. So probably we should either have partnerships or, you know, an eventual acquisition conversation with someone who makes a lot of this stuff. Because, you know, we go to a hospital, they go, they double their hand hygiene rates. Well, guess what? We just doubled revenues for like a lonely sales rep somewhere who were like, just yeah. had Christmas. We're like, what the hell happened to this account? Like, <laughs> right. I just like doubled my sales. Well, imagine what we could do for all of your uh, like accounts like this. We could just double hand hygiene rates. So I knew that, like I had sort of like a theoretical basis, but I didn't do anything about it. Like I had this like adverse reaction, you know, all my competitors should rot in hell. Like I don't, I, I never ever want to talk to them. I like, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to hang out with them. Like I had this like, like very toxic relationship with, you know, folks that, you know, who one day could, could acquire me. Cause I was like, I want to win, like screw them. Like I, I don't want to, I, I don't want them to win. I want them to go out of business. You know, that was a very short view. Again, one-sided, like very anti to what Mark and I were talking about, about how, how you build like a, an right. ecosystem, like think of it like a garden that you're cultivating. Um, one of the folks that we've interviewed for our book, and Bonaparte sort of gave us this advice where like, I always have my party dress on and I always like make myself a known entity with the companies that might be in competition with me, but one day could be my acquirers. And we're not saying go talk to these people and like share your financials with them, but be a known entity. 
be this sort of like curious mind that is bringing new original thought into this space that they've they've been in, in, in forever. Like there is a way for you to generate a relationship with someone who one day be your acquiring partner. Or you may acquire them. Or you may acquire them, vice versa. Like you can be a known right, entity. Right to those organizations without necessarily, you know, revealing what's under the hood or like, here's our customer list, here's or whatever. You don't have to pander to these people, but you can be a known entity. Um, one of the rare folks that I had done that with, and this was through sheer, like, uh, you know, I just like them and we were part of like an industry organization together, was S.E. Johnson. And so, you know, we were, we got an inbound, like it was early in, in 2019, we got some inbound interest. You know, we were approaching what we call in the book a, local maximum, which is we're excited about where things are going. We have a great business, but we already know like there are some challenges ahead and we're going to need more resources, right? We're going to need more capital. We're going to need either strategic partnership because we're growing very, very fast. We want to have infrastructure in place. And as we were sort of like getting ready to sort of like have that real discussion, we had an inbound offer where we're like, okay, we have to evaluate this. If this is real, maybe there are other offers that are out there. Should we raise more capital? So we had an honest conversation with our board. We decided to run a process. So we did sort of like traditional, let's go talk to a bunch of people and see if they're interested in partnering with us. And through that, lo and behold, we ended up with the people that we already knew to begin with, as each person, because we already yeah. knew and trusted them for a long period of time. Uh, so it definitely wasn't the... You know, I was in my corner office smoking my cigar with a <laughs> cognac and I got a phone call. Like it didn't happen like that. Like, you know, yeah. we were like we were running a business and we had like real decisions to make as, as a company. But we very much, you know, ended up partnering with the folks that we already knew and trusted. And sometimes I do say to myself, like, what would it have looked like if we had done that with like two companies, <laughs> like with four companies, with five companies? You know, like this is what we want our, our readers to sort of like think critically through. And sort of architect their exits similarly to what what should happen versus what likely is currently happening right now. Hmm. That's so good. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for for coming. I feel like we could keep talking and and uh, you know <laughs> learn so much more from you guys. Uh, but you know what we like to do is kind of wrap up each episode uh, with a takeaway or a few takeaways. And so um, Ben uh, usually goes through and takes some great notes. What would you say your top three takeaways are, Ben, of today's episode? Man, uh, three is hard, but uh, I'll say don't see interactions as a single transactional moment in time, but as the start of a long-term relationship. I think that is super valuable. Um, I think that don't view selling your startup as an ending, but as the beginning of something new to come and treat it like a garden, like you're curating something to grow for the future, I think is really valuable. Um, and I think I just want to cover the fit one more time because I think, or the, the fair, because I think that's really helpful fit. Is there a cultural fit between the companies alignment? Are you aligned internally with the acquiring company integration? Is there a plan in place where these companies can deliver value together and rationale? Can you explain why joining forces strategically multiplies value? Those are my takeaways. Mm. That's that's so great. And you guys, uh, if if uh, we could offer something to an action item to our listeners to say, hey, if you're thinking about um, you know exiting, what would be an action item that they could take to kind of start doing that uh, right? 
First of all, read eggs are right. Um, that is <laughs> yeah. the, the lowest hanging fruit. Yep. Um, p- frankly, it's a genuine recommendation because what we hope and what we aspire for this book to become is that people pay, you know, 3%, 5% of their eventual sale price to a banker or an advisor or an invest- investment banker that will like sort of like help you guide this process. In a lot of cases, um, you know, for, for most companies that are selling for like less than $100 million, you can probably get away with like what's like you know twenty percent of the of the work is like sort of kind of like contained in the book the, the Pareto principle of yeah. like whatever the exit advice is. Um, so definitely dig into that, but also reach out. We're here to help. Like we, as, as Mark said, um, we believe in sort of giving, and we wrote this book to help founders, and we, we get these kind of requests from founders all the time, which we're uh, which we're always responsive to, because ultimately, you know. But we want more founders to have success in the world. And it doesn't have to be, you know, Mark and Mert specifically. Folks who have exited companies are really, really more than willing to sort of pay it forward because there was someone like us to them that helped them along the way that got them where they are. So don't be shy. Don't be hesitant about sort of like asking for the support, even if it's just like a sanity phone call. Um, It's a long journey. It's an arduous journey. And it doesn't have to be something that you take on on your own. You've been doing a lot as, as, as a founder enough already and, and people can come and sort of support you in this in this journey so we're more than happy to be that for you as sort of a sounding board uh, but we wrote the book with that spirit and you should take advantage of that yeah that's awesome how where's the best place for people to connect with you guys and uh you know get in touch and buy the book twitter linkedin and wherever you buy books the book is available like barnes and nobles to to amazon so you know in this day and age you know how to buy books <laughs> <laughs> or and by the way, you can go to your local library, and if they don't have it, you can ask them, and every local library will order it for you. So oh, nice. I'm a big believer in libraries. <laughs> libraries are so good. Awesome. Well, guys, go to the FridayHabit.com to find show notes for this episode. There you can also find links to our websites and ways to get in touch. At the very bottom of the page, you can download our guide to the Friday Habit System that'll show you how to set aside one full day each week to dedicate working on your business instead of in your business. That's right. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover, don't forget to record us a quick voice memo and send it to hello at thefridayhabit.com. That's right. And thanks for listening. And until next time, live every day like it's Friday. Friday.